Part two of the Fertilizer Files, a special True North report, reveals the federal government was aware that fertilizer emission reduction targets introduced by the Trudeau government would target Western Canada by harming farm yields. But they went ahead with the policy anyway. Sending four tanks to Ukraine was a token donation, says a well-known military expert. The Liberal government paid more than $6 million to quarantine just 15 individuals last year according to government documents released the other day. Small quantities of hard drugs are now not criminal to possess in British Columbia. Hello Canada, it's Wednesday, February 1st, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Anthony Fury. And I'm Cosman Georgia. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. Part two of True North's fertilizer files, government documents reveal that the feds were aware that their fertilizer emission reduction targets would unfairly target Western Canada by harming farm yields, but they went ahead with the policy anyway. Now, the documents obtained through an access to information request show how a web of unachievable expectations are being placed upon the backs of Albertan and Prairie farmers. Western provinces account for over 90% of Canada's canola, spring wheat, and barley crops, meaning any slight reduction in them could upend exports and the food supply at a national level. Now, as part of the Liberal government's 2020 climate plan, Ottawa asked willing farmers to voluntarily reach a 30% reduction in fertilizer emissions below 2020 levels to be achieved by 2030. But during consultations, farmers argued that their existing sustainability practices are being ignored by the government and that there's little leeway to cut more emissions without impacting their ability to grow food for Canadians and for the export market. Part three of the fertilizer files will be released later today at www.tnc.news. Cosman, you are the author of the fertilizer files for True North. And the whole theme of this is this idea that the liberals are, are so obsessed with meeting climate targets, that they want to reduce fertilizer use. I know they say they want to reduce the emissions, but we're told that you can't really separate the two. They want to reduce fertilizer usage in a way that does potentially see us reducing the amount of food we produce, sending food prices soaring. And I know they've maintained for a while that this is going to be voluntary, but one of the main things your series is showing is that they are considering making this mandatory. And in part two, we understand that they know that it's going to have negative effects. Right. So what we see consistently with these documents is farmers and industry groups, they're raising the same concerns. Any um, reduction in absolute emissions will require a reduction in fertilizer use and which will inevitably lead to a loss in yields uh, in terms of crops and and what they're producing. So uh, a group, uh, one of the main industry groups, Fertilizer Canada, actually conducted a study on on what it would look like if there was a total emission reduction in the agricultural industry. And they found that farmer cash receipts could drop by 54%. Now, that's a huge amount. That's about a, a $21.2 billion per year for farmers nationwide. And, and as you mentioned, 
Canada's most 99% of Canada's canola production uh, comes from three provinces, Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan. And that's a main export. Most of our canola gets exported to countries like China and elsewhere. Same goes for barley, which is about 96% gets produced in those three provinces. So we're talking about very significant figures here that will impact the industry on a whole and also our economy and, and, and what we export. And I know we have part three coming out later today, and there are lingering questions about what is the Liberal government actually going to do? Because they have maintained, no, this is all voluntary, but one wonders if it's voluntary, why is it the government's business anyway? What exactly are they planning to do? And I understand the government has not yet gotten back to you on where things stand with that. What can happen next? What do we think happens next in this developing uh, legislative approach here? Right. So they have a tentative plan to strike up these agreements with farmers by 2023. Uh, now, these agreements can take different forms because of the just the different ranges of, of climate and, and different conditions in, in different areas where farming activity takes place. But with the, the question, you know, we, we reported in our first uh, part of the series that the government has uh, considered a regulatory backstop, which is what they described uh, the carbon tax when they were introducing it. Now, the, to me, that shows that there is deliberation. These documents, these discussion papers that are uh, internally within agricultural Canada, they're not just thrown around. These are deliberated upon. They have multiple staffers, high-level um, you know, deputy ministers and communications people deliberating over these. So it's clear to me that this is being considered seriously. It's being thrown around in internal discussions that the public is not privy to. Former defense advisor and military historian David J. Berkison said Canada donated four Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine because of tremendous political pressure rather than a desire to support the country. He told True North the donation is frivolous. Berkison, the author of many books on Canadian military history, said the donation is comparable to being an item on Canada's diplomatic agenda. He also said Canadian leaders truthfully appear uninterested in providing support to Ukraine, due to their spotty record of donations. When asked about National Defense Minister Anita Anand's comment that she may donate additional tanks in the future, Berkison said the comment was public opinion maneuvering. Now, Anthony, has the war in Ukraine been politicized by the Trudeau government? And, and, and what, uh, what do you think about Berkison's comments here? Well, I think he's probably right in terms of the fact this is politics. There's just four tanks. It's not a meaningful number. I find it interesting. There hasn't been much reaction to the fact that we're also putting boots on the ground uh, because we are sending trainers along. I know they're not being sent to engage militarily, but they're still having a presence there in what will be a broader conflict zone. Also, Trudeau's in an interesting situation where uh, he has his world stage sort of presence that he wants to back up and he needs to kind of score points and, and fit into that whole realm. He's got the fact that he can't do anything unless the Biden administration explicitly gives him the okay to do it. And he's got the fact that he's got the largest Ukrainian immigrant community um, outside of Ukraine here in Canada, and they reside in predominantly swing ridings, liberal conservative swing ridings uh, in the GTA, and I know in other provinces as well. So there's so many political things that he's balancing here. I, I think predominantly, yes, it's a political decision. 
Right. The question is, what will four tanks do in the grand scheme of things? And as we've talked about before, the bulk of Canada's contribution to Ukraine was not military equipment, uh, but financial contributions through loans. So do you think Canada will continue to contribute military equipment or are we going to continue down the path of financial and economic contributions? We're probably going to see a bit of both. There was great momentum initially to say, let's get Ukraine into NATO immediately. And a lot of key NATO people said, no, that's not how it works. It's a multi-year process. Let's bring in a no-fly zone. No, that's not how it works. It means going to war in the skies with Russia. So a little bit of material, a little bit of money, that is seen as the compromise. The Liberal government shelled out more than $6 million to quarantine just 15 individuals in 2022. That's according to order paper question answers released by Conservative MP Michelle Rempel Garner. Now that fee breaks down to roughly $450,000 per quarantined individual. So the facility in question was a quarantine area erected at the Weston Calgary Airport Hotel on authority of the Minister of Health, who was Patty Hadju at the time. The outcome at the Weston Hotel shows incompetency at the highest level, says MP Rempel Garner. Waste of this magnitude, she writes, shows that Trudeau doesn't have the capacity or willingness to get things under control. Cosman, I wonder, does it just show that or does it also show that what was the point with these aggressive quarantine facilities at airports anyway in terms of the take rate of number of individuals who were there and just the general all-around COVID waste? We were just willing to throw really hundreds of billions of dollars, because at all levels of government, that is the price tag thrown at this thing, willy-nilly, without accountability or reason. Right. And I recall going back at the height of the pandemic, Patty Hajdu was actually questioned about the science of quarantine hotels, and the health ministry was not really able to back that up. So it, it brings to mind, you know, what, what was the decision uh, to institute this? And, and I, I lean towards you know, creating a sort of consequence for people so that they go out and get vaccinated and they comply with government orders. And with regards to the spending, we've seen time and time again, the federal government has blundered their uh, pandemic approach. It's been overspending uh, in every instance. You know, in 2020, we found Canada purchased millions of faulty masks from China, we also sent 16 tons of medical supplies to China early on in the pandemic and then found ourselves buying the exact same personal protective equipment at above market rates when the pandemic was raging and every country was trying to get their hands on this stuff. Even prior to the pandemic, the public health agency shuttered the doors of several warehouses, throwing all of this equipment uh, into the garbage and then found themselves uh, with their foot in their mouths. Small quantities of drugs are now not criminal to possess in British Columbia. The province's three-year program began Tuesday, allowing British Columbians to keep small quantities of heroin, crack, cocaine, fentanyl, MDMA, and meth on hand. Residents over the age of 18 may have a combined total of 2.5 grams of these drugs. According to the province, decriminalization will reduce stigma around drug use and address barriers that prevent addicts from accessing life-saving support. The policy took effect Tuesday, promising that adults with the allotted personal quantities will not be charged or arrested. So is, 
is BC the first jurisdiction to try to decriminalize drugs as a way to deal with this crisis we're seeing? No, they're not. We have a couple other jurisdictions, Cosman, that have done this in a similar way. Portugal is one major example, pretty much decriminalizing most drug use. Oregon has tried similar things. The question, though, is what you do in addition to doing all of this. I think most Canadians are, are now at the same starting point where we all agree that we don't want our fellow Canadians who are, are suffering mental health issues or, or previous traumas, they're homeless, they're on the streets. We don't want to see them dying from drug use. And do we want our tax dollars going to just putting them in jail uh, repeatedly for minor possession? Mostly this is a, a tragedy and we want this to be dealt with. We want these people to be treated and to get better. But does this help accomplish that? In Portugal, everything is decriminalized, yet they really push for treatment. And here in Canada, the harm reduction community is, I guess, in support of treatment, but not in support of pushing for treatment. They don't like to see any real connection between uh, there being an expectation that someone is funneled towards treatment. And I think that's the big concern here. Cosman, what do you think? You live in BC. I know you see the downtown east side and what's happening there and the, the really sad things that are going on in people's lives. Will this make things better or worse? Well, the question is, you know, were people actually being arrested prior to this uh, decriminalization initiative? And from my understanding uh, of uh, speaking to law enforcement, uh, they they weren't, you know, because possession small possession of small amounts of drugs wasn't really enforced because for the exact same reason, right? It it is a it tangles up the justice system and and it uses police resources. Uh, and uh, if you've ever been to 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 the downtown east side, there are people using drugs openly. There's an open drug market there uh, uh, daily. So the you know decriminalization is just kind of putting a, a stamp on something that was. Uh, already the case. And astoundingly, we've seen some very questionable methods introduced here in BC, including, you know, providing free drugs. We saw a story uh, a few years back of a city councillor basically handing out hard drugs to, to users. We've seen uh, the setup of vending machines that dispense drugs. So to me, it it kind of disturbs me, and and the question behind it is is it is this really about helping people, or is it about distributing drugs uh, from a government supply? That's it for today, and don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know, including our ongoing series, The Fertilizer Files. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening and have a great day.